Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Tonight, I will be reading Nicholas Nickleby by Charles Dickens. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 1 Introduces All the Rest There once lived, in a sequestered part of the county of Devonshire, one Mr. Godfrey Nickleby, a worthy gentleman, who, taking it into his head rather late in life, that he must get married, and not being young enough or rich enough to aspire to the hand 
Valady of Fortune, had wedded an old flame out of mere attachment, who in her turn had taken him for the same reason. Thus, two people who cannot afford to play cards for money sometimes sit down to a quiet game for love. Some ill-conditioned persons who snare the life matrimonial may perhaps suggest, in this place, that the good couple would be better likened to two principals in a sparring match, who, when fortune is low and backers scarce, will chivalrously set to, for the mere pleasure of the buffeting. And in one respect, indeed, this comparison would hold good, for as the adventurous pair of the fives court will afterwards send round a hat and trust to the bounty of the lookers-on for the means of regaling themselves, so Mr. Godfrey Nickleby and his partner, the honeymoon being over, looked out wistfully into the world, relying in no inconsiderable degree upon chance for the improvement of their means. Mr. Nickleby's income, at the period of his marriage, fluctuated between 60 and 80 pounds per annum. There are people enough in the world, heaven knows, and even in London, where Mr. Nickleby dwelt in those days, but few complaints prevail of the population being scanty. It is extraordinary how long a man may look among the crowd without discovering the face of a friend, but it is no less true. Mr. Nickleby looked and looked till his eyes became sore as his heart, but no friend appeared. And when, growing tired of the search, he turned his eyes homeward, he saw very little there to relieve his weary vision. A painter who has gazed too long upon some glaring colour refreshes his dazzled sight by looking upon a darker and more sombre tint. But everything that met Mr. Nickleby's gaze wore so black and gloomy a hue that he would have been beyond description refreshed by the very reverse of the contrast. At length, after five years, when Mrs. Nickleby had presented her husband with a couple of sons, and that embarrassed gentleman, impressed with the necessity of making some provision for his family, was seriously revolving in his mind a little commercial speculation of ensuring his life next quarter day, and then falling from the top of the monument by accident. There came, one morning, by the general post, a black-bordered letter to inform him how his uncle, Mr. Ralph Nickleby, was dead, and had left him the bulk of his little property, amounting in all to five thousand pounds sterling. As the deceased had taken no further notice of his nephew in his lifetime than sending to his eldest boy, who had been christened after him on desperate speculation, a silver spoon in a Morocco case, which, as he had not much to eat with it, seemed a kind of satire upon his having been born without that useful article of plate in his mouth. Mr. Godfrey Nickleby could, at first, scarcely believe the tidings thus conveyed to him. On examination, however, they turned out to be strictly correct. The amiable old gentleman, it seemed, had intended to leave the whole to the Royal Humane Society and had indeed executed a will to that effect. But the institution, having been unfortunate enough, a few months before to save the life of a poor relation, to whom he paid a weekly allowance of three shillings and sixpence, he had, in a fit of very natural exasperation, revoked the bequest in a codicil, and left it all to Mr. Godfrey Nickleby. With a special mention of his indignation, 
not only against the society for saving the poor relations a life, but against the poor relation also for allowing himself to be saved. With a portion of this property, Mr. Godfrey Nickleby purchased a small farm near Dawlish in Devonshire, whither he retired with his wife and two children to live upon the best interest he could get for the rest of his money and the little produce he could raise from his land. The two prospered so well together that when he died some fifteen years after this period and some five after his wife, he was enabled to leave to his eldest son, Ralph, three thousand pounds in cash and to his youngest son, Nicholas, one thousand and the farm, which was as small a landed estate as one would desire to see. These two brothers had been brought up together in a school at Exeter, and being accustomed to go home once a week, had often heard, from their mother's lips, long accounts of their father's sufferings in his days of poverty, and of their deceased uncle's importance in his days of affluence, which recitals produced a very different impression on the two. For while the younger, who was a, a timid and retiring disposition, gleaned from thence nothing but forewarnings to shun the great world and attach himself to the quiet routine of a country life. Ralph, the elder, deduced from the often-repeated tale the two great morals that riches are the only true source of happiness and power, and that it is lawful and just to compass their acquisition by all means short of felony. And, reasoned Ralph with himself, if no good came of my uncle's money when he was alive, a great deal of good came of it after he was dead, inasmuch as my father has got it now and is saving it up for me, which is a highly virtuous purpose. And, going back to the old gentleman, good did come of it to him too, for he had the pleasure of thinking of it all his life long and of being envied and courted by all his family besides. And Ralph always wound up these mental soliloquies by arriving at the conclusion that there was nothing like money. Not confining himself to theory or permitting his faculties to rust, even at that early age, in mere abstract speculations, this promising lad commenced usurer on a limited scale at school, putting out a good interest, a small capital of slate, pencil and marbles, and gradually extending his operations until they aspired to the copper coinage of this realm in which he speculated to considerable advantage. Nor did he trouble his borrowers with abstract calculations of figures or references to ready reckoners, his simple rule of interest being all comprised in the one golden sentence, two pence for every halfpenny, which greatly simplify the accounts and which, as a familiar precept, more easily acquired and retained to the memory than any known rule of arithmetic cannot be too strongly recommended to the notice of capitalists, both large and small, and more especially of money brokers and bill discounters. Indeed, to do these gentlemen justice, many of them are to this day in the frequent habit of adopting it with eminent success. In like manner did young Ralph Nickleby avoid all those minute and intricate calculations of odd days, which nobody who has worked sums in simple interest can fail to have found most embarrassing by establishing the one general rule that all sums of principal and interest should be paid on pocket money day, that is to say, on Saturday, and that whether a loan were contracted on the Monday or on the Friday, the amount of interest should be, in both cases, the same. Indeed, he argued, 
and with a great show of reason, that it ought to be rather more for one day than for five, inasmuch as the borrower might in the former case be very fairly presumed to be in a great extremity. Otherwise he would not be war at all with such odds against him. This fact is interesting, as illustrating the secret connection and sympathy which always exists between great minds. Though Master Ralph Nickleby was not at that time aware of it, the class of gentlemen before alluded to proceed on just the same principle in all their transactions. From what we have said of this young gentleman and the natural admiration the reader will immediately conceive of his character, it may perhaps be inferred that he is to be the hero of the work which we shall presently begin. To set this point at rest for once and forever, we hasten to undeceive them and stride to its commencement. On the death of his father, Ralph Nickleby, who had been some time before placed in a mercantile house in London, applied himself passionately to his old pursuit of money-getting, in which he speedily became so buried and absorbed that he quite forgot his brother for many years. And if, at times, a recollection of his old playfellow broke upon him through the haze in which he lived, for gold conjures up a mist about a man, more destructive of all his old senses and lulling to his feelings than the fumes of charcoal, it brought along with it a companion thought, that if they were intimate, he would want to borrow money of him. So, Mr. Ralph Nickleby shrugged his shoulders and said things were better as they were. As for Nicholas, he lived as a single man on the patrimonial estate until he grew tired of living alone, and then he took to wife the daughter of a neighbouring gentleman with a dower of £1,000. This good lady bore him two children, a son and a daughter, and when the son was about nineteen and the daughter fourteen, as near as we can guess, impartial records of young ladies' ages being, before the passing of the new act, nowhere preserved in the registries of this country. Mr. Nickleby looked about him for the means of repairing his capital, now sadly reduced by this increase in his family and the expenses of their education. Speculate with it, said Mrs. Nickleby. Speculate, my dear, said Mr. Nickleby, as though in doubt. Why not? asked Mrs. Nickleby. Because, my dear, if we should lose it, rejoined Mr. Nickleby, who was a slow and time-taking speaker, if we should lose it, we shall no longer be able to live, my dear. Fiddle, said Mrs. Nickleby. I'm not altogether sure of that, my dear, said Mr. Nickleby. There's Nicholas, pursued the lady, quite a young man. It's time he was in the way of doing something for himself. And Kate, too, poor girl, without a penny in the world. Think of your brother. Would he be what he is if he hadn't speculated? That's true, replied Mr. Nickleby. Very good, my dear. Yes, I will speculate, my dear. Speculation is a round game. The players see little or nothing of their cards at first starting. Gains may be great, and so may losses. The run of luck went against Mr. Nickleby. A mania prevailed. A bubble burst. Four stockbrokers took villa residences at Florence. Four hundred nobodies were ruined. And among them, Mr. Nickleby. The very house I live in, sighed the poor gentleman, may be taken from me tomorrow. Not an article of my old furniture, but will be sold to strangers. The last reflection hurt him so much that he took at once to his bed, apparently resolved to keep that at all events. Cheer up, sir, said the apothecary. 
You mustn't let yourself be cast down, sir, said the nurse. Such things happen every day, remarked the lawyer. And it is very sinful to rebel against them, whispered the clergyman. And what no man with a family ought to do, added the neighbours. Mr. Nickleby shook his head, emotioning them all out of the room, embraced his wife and children, and having pressed them by turns to his languidly beating heart, sunk exhausted on his pillow. They were concerned to find that his reason went astray after this, for he babbled for a long time about the generosity and goodness of his brother and the merry old times when they were at school together. This fit of wandering past, he solemnly commended them to one who never deserted the widow or their fatherless children, and smiling gently on them, turned upon his face and observed that he thought he could fall asleep. Chapter 2 of Mr. Ralph Nickleby and his establishments and his undertakings, and a great joint stock company of vast national importance. Mr. Ralph Nickleby was not, strictly speaking, what you would call a merchant. Neither was he a banker nor an attorney, nor a special pleader nor a notary. He was certainly not a tradesman, and still less could he lay any claim to the title of a professional gentleman for it would have been impossible to mention any recognized profession to which he belonged. Nevertheless, as he lived in a spacious house in Golden Square, which, in addition to a brass plate upon the street door, had another brass plate two sizes and a half smaller upon the left-hand doorpost, surrounding a brass model of an infant's fist grasping a fragment of a skewer and displaying the word office, it was clear that Mr. Ralph Nickleby did, or pretended to do, business of some kind. And the fact, if it required any further circumstantial evidence, was abundantly demonstrated by the diurnal attendance, between the hours of half-past nine and five, of a sallow-faced man in rusty brown, who sat upon an uncommonly hard stool in a species of butler's pantry at the end of the passage, and always had a pen behind his ear when he answered the bell. Although a few members of the graver professions live about Golden Square, it is not exactly in anybody's way to or from anywhere. It is one of the squares that have been, a quarter of the town that has gone down in the world, and taken to letting lodgings. Many of its first and second floors are let, furnished to single gentlemen, and it takes boarders besides. It is a great resort of foreigners. The men who wear large rings and heavy watch guards and bushy whiskers, and who congregate under the upper colonnade, and about the box office in the season between four and five in the afternoon, when they give away the orders, all live in Golden Square, or within a street of it. Two or three violins and a wind instrument from the opera band reside within its precincts. Its boarding houses are musical, and the notes of pianos and harps float in the evening time around the head of the mournful statue, the guardian genius of a little wilderness of shrubs in the centre of the square. On a summer's night, windows are thrown open, and groups of swarthy, moustached men are seen by the passerby, lounging at the casements and smoking fearfully. Sounds of gruff voices practising vocal music invade the evening silence, and the fumes of choice tobacco scent the air. There, snuff and cigars and German pipes and flutes and violins and violoncellos divide the supremacy between them. It is the region of song and smoke. 
Street bands are on their metal in Golden Square, and itinerant glee singers quaver involuntarily as they raise their voices within its boundaries. This would not seem a spot very well adapted to the transaction of business, but Mr. Ralph Nickleby had lived there, notwithstanding, for many years, and uttered no complaint on that score. He knew nobody around about, and nobody knew him, although he enjoyed the reputation of being immensely rich. The tradesmen held that he was a sort of lawyer, and the other neighbours opined that he was a kind of general agent, both of which guesses were as correct and definite as guesses about other people's affairs usually are, or need to be. Mr. Ralph Nickleby sat in his private office one morning, ready dressed to walk abroad. He wore a bottle green spencer over a blue coat, a white waistcoat, grey mixture pantaloons, and Wellington boots drawn over them. The corner of a small plaited shirt frill struggled out, as if insisting to show itself, from between his chin and the top button of his spencer, and the latter garment was not made low enough to conceal a long gold watch chain comprised of a series of plain rings, which had its beginning at the handle of a gold repeater in Mr. Nickleby's pocket, and its termination in two little keys, one belonging to the watch itself and the other to some patent padlock. He wore a sprinkling of powder upon his head, as if to make himself look benevolent, but if that were his purpose, he would perhaps have done better to powder his countenance also, for there was something in its very wrinkles and in his cold, restless eye which seemed to tell of cunning that would announce itself in spite of him. However this might be, there he was, and as he was all alone, neither the powder nor the wrinkles nor the eyes had the smallest effect, good or bad, upon anybody just then, and are consequently no business of ours just now. Mr. Nickleby closed an account book which lay on his desk, and throwing himself back in his chair, gazed with an air of abstraction through the dirty window. Some London houses have a little melancholy little plot of ground behind them, usually fenced in by four high whitewashed walls, and frowned upon by stacks of chimneys, in which there withers on, from year to year, a crippled tree that makes a show of putting forth a few leaves late in autumn when other trees shed theirs, and drooping in the effort, lingers on, all crackled and smoke-dried, till the following season, when it repeats the same process, and perhaps, if the weather be particularly genial, even attempts some rheumatic sparrow to chirrup in its branches. People sometimes call these dark yards gardens. It is not supposed that they are ever planted, but rather that they are pieces of unreclaimed land with the withered vegetation of the original brickfield. No man thinks of walking in this desolate place or of turning it to any account. A few hampers, half a dozen broken bottles and such like rubbish may be thrown there when the tenant first moves in, but nothing more. And there they remain until he goes away again, the damp straw taking just as long to moulder as it thinks proper and mingling with the scanty box and stunted everbrowns and broken flower pots that are scattered mournfully about. It was into a place of this kind that Mr. Ralph Nickleby gazed as he sat with his hands in his pockets, looking out of the window. He had fixed his eyes upon a distorted fir tree, planted by some former tenant in a tub, that had once been green and left there, years before, to rot away piecemeal. There was nothing very inviting in the object, but Mr. Nickleby was wrapped in a brown study, and sat contemplating it 
with far greater intention than, in a more conscious mood, he would have deigned to bestow upon the rarest exotic. At length, his eyes wandered to a little dirty window on the left, through which the face of the clerk was dimly visible, that worthy chancing to look up, he beckoned him to attend. In obedience to this summons, the clerk got off the high stool, to which he had communicated a high polish by countless gettings off and on, and presented himself in Mr. Nickleby's room. He was a tall man of middle age with two goggle eyes, whereof one was a fixture, a rubicon nose, a cadaverous face, and a suit of clothes, if the term be allowable when they suited him not at all, much the worse for wear, very much too small, and placed upon such a short allowance of buttons that it was marvellous how he contrived to keep them on. Was that half-past twelve, Noggs? said Mr. Nickleby in a sharp and grating voice. Not more than five and twenty minutes by the... Noggs was going to add public house clock, but recollecting himself, substituted regular time. My watch has stopped, said Mr. Nickleby. I don't know from what cause. Not wound up, said Noggs. Yes, it is, said Mr. Nickleby. Overwound, then, rejoined Noggs. That can't very well be, observed Mr. Nickleby. Must be, said Noggs. Well, said Mr. Nickleby, putting the repeater back in his pocket. Perhaps it is. Noggs gave a peculiar grunt, as was his custom at the end of all disputes with his master, to imply that he, Noggs, triumphed. And, as he rarely spoke to anybody, unless somebody spoke to him, fell into a grim silence and rubbed his hands slowly over each other, cracking the joints of his fingers and squeezing them into all possible distortions. The incessant performance of this routine on every occasion and the communication of a fixed and rigid look to his unaffected eye, so as to make it uniform with the other, and to render it impossible for anybody to determine where or at what he was looking, were two among the numerous peculiarities of Mr. Noggs, which struck an inexperienced observer at first sight. I am going to the London Tavern this morning, said Mr. Nickleby. Public meeting? inquired Noggs. Mr. Nickleby nodded. I expect a letter from the solicitor respecting that mortgage of Ruddles. If it comes at all, it will be here by the two o'clock delivery. I shall leave the city about that time and walk to Charing Cross on the left-hand side of the way. If there are any letters, come and meet me and bring them with you. Noggs nodded, and as he nodded, there came a ring at the office bell. The master looked up from his papers and the clerk calmly remained in a stationary position. The bell, said Noggs as though an explanation. At home? Yes. To anybody? Yes. To the tax-gatherer? No. Let him call again. Noggs gave vent to his usual grunt, as much as to say, I thought so, and, the ring being repeated, went to the door, whence he presently returned, ushering in, by the name of Mr. Bonney, a pale gentleman in a violent hurry, with his hair standing up in great disorder all over his head, and a very narrow white cravat tied loosely round his throat, looked as if he had been knocked up in the night, and had not dressed himself since. My dear Nickleby, said the gentleman, taking off a white hat, which was so full of papers that it would scarcely stick upon his head. There's not a moment to lose. I have a cab at the door. Sir Matthew Pupker takes the chair, and three members of Parliament are positively coming. I've seen two of them safely out of bed. The third, who was at Crockford's all night, 
has just gone home to put a clean shirt on and take a bottle or two of soda water and will certainly be with us in time to address the meeting. He's a little excited by last night, but never mind that. He always speaks the stronger for it. It seems to promise pretty well, said Mr. Ralph Nickleby, whose deliberate manner was strongly opposed to the vivacity of the other man of business. Pretty well, echoed Mr. Bonney. It's the finest idea that has ever started. United Metropolitan Improved Hot Muffin and Crumpet Baking and Punctual Delivery Company. Capital, five millions, in 500,000 shares of ten pounds each. Why, the very name will get the shares up to a premium in ten days. And when they are at a premium, said Mr. Ralph Nickleby, smiling. When they are, you know what to do with them, as well as any man alive, and how to back quietly out at the right time, said Mr. Bonney, slapping the capitalist familiarly on the shoulder. By the by, what a very remarkable man that clerk of yours is. Yes, poor devil, replied Ralph, drawing on his gloves. Though Newman Noggs kept his horses and hounds once. Aye, said the other carelessly. Yes, continued Ralph, and not many years ago either. But he squandered his money, invested it anyhow, borrowed at interest, and in short, made first a thorough fool of himself and then a beggar. He took to drinking and had a touch of paralysis, and then came here to borrow a pound, as in his better days I had. Done business with him, said Mr. Bonney with a meaning look. Just so, replied Ralph. I couldn't lend it, you know. Oh, of course not. But as I wanted a clerk just then to open the door and so forth, I took him out of charity, and he has remained with me ever since. He is a little mad, I think, said Mr. Nickleby, calling up a charitable look. But he is useful enough, poor creature useful enough. The kind-hearted gentleman omitted to add that Newman Noggs, being utterly destitute, served him for rather less than the usual wages of a boy of thirteen, and likewise failed to mention, in his hasty chronicle, that his eccentric taciturnity rendered him an especially valuable person in a place where much business was done, of which it was desirable no mention should be made out of doors. The other gentleman was plainly impatient to be gone, however, and as they hurried into the Hackney Cabriolet immediately afterwards, perhaps Mr. Nickleby forgot to mention circumstances so unimportant. There was a great bustle in Bishopsgate Street within, as they drew up, and it being a windy day, half a dozen men were tacking across the road under a press of paper, bearing gigantic announcements that a public meeting would be holden at one o'clock precisely to take into consideration the propriety of petitioning Parliament in favour of the United Metropolitan Improved Hot Muffin and Crumpet Baking and Punctual Delivery Company, capital five millions and 500,000 shares of £10 each, which sums were duly set forth in fat black figures of considerable size. Mr. Bonney elbowed his way briskly upstairs, receiving in his progress many low bows from the waiters who stood on the landings to show the way and, followed by Mr. Nickleby, dived into a suite of apartments behind the great public room, in the second of which was a business-looking table and several business-looking people. Here, cried a gentleman with a double chin, as Mr. Bonney presented himself. Chair, gentlemen, chair. And the newcomers were received with universal approbation, and Mr. Bonney bustled up to the top of the table, took off his hat, ran his fingers through his hair, and knocked a hackney coachman's knock on the table with a little hammer. 
whereat several gentlemen cried hair and nodded slightly to each other, as much as to say what spirited conduct that was. Just at this moment, a waiter, feverish with agitation, tore into the room and throwing the door open with a crash, shouted, Sir Matthew Pupker. The committee stood up and clapped their hands for joy, and while they were clapping, in came Sir Matthew Pupker, attended by two live members of Parliament, one Irish and one Scotch, all smiling and bowing and looking so pleasant that it seemed a perfect marvel how any man could have the heart to vote against them. Sir Matthew Pupker especially, who had a little round head with a flaxen wig on the top of it, fell into such a paroxysm of bows that the wig threatened to be jerked off every instant. When these symptoms had in some degree subsided, the gentlemen who were on speaking terms with Sir Matthew Pupker, or the two other members, crowded round them in three little groups, near one or other of which the gentlemen who were not on speaking terms with Sir Matthew Pupker, or the two other members, stood lingering and smiling and rubbing their hands, in the desperate hope of something turning up which might bring them into notice. All this time, Sir Matthew Pupker and the two other members were relating to their separate circles what the intentions of government were about taking up the bill, with a full account of what the government had said in a whisper the last time they dined with it, and how the government had been observed to wink when it said so, from which premises they were at no loss to draw the conclusion that if the government had one object more at heart than another, that one object was the welfare and advantage of the United Metropolitan Improved Hot Muffin and Crumpet Baking and Punctual Delivery Company. Meanwhile, and pending the arrangement of the proceedings and a fair division of the speechifying, the public in the large room were eyeing, by turns, the empty platform and the ladies in the music gallery. In these amusements, the greater portion of them had been occupied for a couple of hours before, and as the most agreeable diversions pall upon the taste on a too protracted enjoyment of them, the sterner spirits now began to hammer the floor with their boot heels and to express their dissatisfaction by various hoots and cries. These vocal exertions, emanating from the people who had been there longest, naturally proceeded from those who were nearest to the platform and furthest from the policemen in attendance, who, having no mind to fight their way through the crowd, but entertaining nevertheless a praiseworthy desire to do something to quell the disturbance, immediately began to drag forth, by the coattails and collars, all the quiet people near the door. At the same time, dealing out various smart and tingling blows with their truncheons, after the manner of that ingenious actor, Mr. Punch, whose brilliant example, both in the fashion of his weapons and their use, this branch of the executive occasionally follows. Several very exciting skirmishes were in progress when a loud shout attracted the attention, even of the belligerents, and then there poured onto the platform, from a door at the side, a long line of gentlemen with their hats off, all looking behind them and uttering vociferous cheers. The cause whereof was sufficiently explained when Sir Matthew Pupker and the two other real members of Parliament came to the front amidst deafening shouts and testified to each other in dumb motions that they had never seen such a glorious sight as that in the whole course of their public career. At length, and at last, the assembly left off shouting, but Sir Matthew Pupker, being voted into the chair, they underwent a relapse which lasted five minutes. 
This over, Sir Matthew Pupker went on to say, What must be his feelings on that great occasion? And what must be that occasion in the eyes of the world? And what must be the intelligence of his fellow countrymen before him? And what must be the wealth and respectability of his honourable friends behind him? And lastly, what must be the importance to the wealth, the happiness, the comfort, the liberty, the very existence of a free and great people? If such an institution as the United Metropolitan improved hot muffin and crumpet baking and punctual delivery company. Mr. Bonney then presented himself to move the first resolution, and having run his right hand through his hair and planted his left in an easy manner in his ribs, he consigned his hat to the care of the gentleman with the double chin, who acted as a species of bottle holder to the orators generally, and said he would read to them the first resolution. At this meeting, views with alarm and apprehension, the existing state of the muffin trade in this metropolis and its neighbourhood, that it considers the muffin boys, as at present constituted, wholly underserving the confidence of the public, and that it deems the whole muffin system alike prejudicial to the health and morals of the people, and subversive of the best interests of a great commercial and mercantile community. The Honourable Gentleman made a speech which drew tears from the eyes of ladies, and awakened the liveliest emotions in every individual present. He had visited the houses of the poor in the various districts of London, and had found them destitute of the slightest vestige of a muffin, which there appeared too much reason to believe some of these indigent persons did not taste from year's end to year's end. He had found that among muffin sellers there existed drunkenness, debauchery, and profligacy, which he attributed to the debasing nature of their employment as at present exercised. He had found the same vices among the poorer class of people who ought to be muffin consumers. And this he attributed to the despair engendered by their being placed beyond the reach of that nutritious article, which drove them to seek a false stimulant in intoxicating liquors. He would undertake to prove before a committee of the House of Commons that there existed a combination to keep up the price of muffins and to give the bellman, a monopoly. He would prove it by a bellman at the bar of that house, and he would also prove that these men corresponded with each other by secret words and signs, as Snooks, Walker, Ferguson, Is Murphy Wright, and many others. It was this melancholy state of things that the company proposed to correct, firstly by prohibiting, under heavy penalties, all private muffin trading of every description, secondly, by themselves supplying the public generally and the poor at their own homes, with muffins of first quality at reduced rates. It was with this object that a bill had been introduced into Parliament by their patriotic chairman, Sir Matthew Pupker. It was this bill that they had meant to support. It was the supporters of this bill who would confer undying brightness and splendour upon England, under the name of the United Metropolitan Improved Hot Muffin and Crumpet Baking and Punctual Delivery Company. He would add, with a capital of five millions and five hundred thousand shares of ten pounds each. Mr. Ralph Nickleby seconded the resolution, and another gentleman, having moved that it be amended by the insertion of the words and crumpet, after the word muffin, whenever it occurred, it was carried triumphantly. Only one man in the crowd cried no, and he was promptly taken into custody and straightway borne off. The second resolution, which recognised the expediency of immediately abolishing all muffin or crumpet sellers, all traders in muffins or crumpets, 
of whatsoever description, whether male or female, boys or men, ringing handbells or otherwise, was moved by a grievous gentleman of semi-clerical appearance, who went at once into a such deep pathetics that he knocked the first speaker clean out of the course in no time. You might have heard a pin fall, a pin, a feather, as he described the cruelties inflicted on muffin boys by their masters, which he very wisely urged were, in themselves, a sufficient reason for the establishment of that inestimable company. It seemed that the unhappy youths were nightly turned out into the wet streets at the most inclement periods of the year, to wander about in darkness and rain, or it might be hail or snow, for hours together, without shelter, food or warmth. And let the public never forget, upon the latter point, that while the muffins were provided with warm clothing and blankets, the boys were wholly unprovided for and left to their own miserable resources. Shame. The honourable gentleman related one case of a muffin boy, who having been exposed to this inhuman and barbarous system for no less than five years, at length fell a victim to a cold in the head, beneath which he gradually sunk until he fell into a perspiration and recovered. This he could vouch for on his own authority. But he had heard, and he had no reason to doubt the fact, of a still more heart-rending and appalling circumstance. He had heard of the case of an orphan muffin boy, who, having been run over by a hackney carriage, had been removed to the hospital, had undergone the amputation of his leg below the knee, and was now actually pursuing his occupation on crutches. Fountain of justice, were these things to last? This was the department of the subject that took the meeting, and this was the style of speaking to enlist their sympathies. The men shouted, the ladies wept into their pocket handkerchiefs till they were moist, and waved them till they were dry. The excitement was tremendous, and Mr. Nickleby whispered his friend that the shares were thenceforth at a premium of five and twenty percent. The resolution was, of course, carried with loud acclamations, every man holding up both hands in favour of it, as he would in his enthusiasm have held up both legs also, if he could have conveniently accomplished it. This done, the draft of the proposed petition was read at length, and the petition said, as all petitions do say, that the petitioners were very humble, and the petitioned very honourable, and the object very virtuous. Therefore, said the petition, the bill ought to be passed into law at once, to the everlasting honour and glory of the most honourable and glorious Commons of England and Parliament assembled. Then the gentleman who had been at Crockford's all night, and who looked something the worse about the eyes in consequence, came forward to tell his fellow countrymen what a speech he meant to make in favour of that petition whenever it should be presented, and how desperately he meant to taunt the Parliament if they rejected the bill, and to inform them also that he regretted his honourable friends had not inserted a clause rendering the purchase of muffins and crumpets compulsory upon all classes of the community, which he, opposing all half-measures and preferring to go the extreme animal, pledged himself to propose and divide upon in committee. After announcing this determination, the honourable gentleman grew jocular, and his patent boots, lemon-coloured kid gloves and a fur coat collar assist jokes materially, there was immense laughter and much cheering, and moreover such a brilliant display of ladies' pocket handkerchiefs as threw the grievous gentleman quite into the shade. And when the petition had been read and was about to be adopted, there came forward the Irish member, who was a young gentleman of ardent temperament, 
is such a speech as only an Irish member can make, breathing the true soul and spirit of poetry, and poured forth with such fervor that it made one warm to look at him, in the course whereof he told them how he would demand the extension of that great boon to his native country, how he would claim for her equal rights in the muffin laws as in all other laws, and how he yet hoped to see the day when crumpets should be toasted in her lowly cabins and muffin bells should ring in her rich green valleys. And after him came the Scotch member, with various pleasant allusions, to the probable amount of profits, which increased the good humour that the poetry had awakened. And all the speeches put together did exactly what they were intended to do, and established in the hearers' minds that there was no speculation so promising, or at the same time so praiseworthy, as the United Metropolitan Improved Hot Muffin and Crumpet Baking and Punctual Delivery Company. So the petition in favour of the bill was agreed upon, and the meeting adjourned with acclamations, and Mr. Nickleby and the other directors went to the office to lunch, as they did every day at half-past one o'clock, and to remunerate themselves for which trouble, as the company was yet in its infancy, they only charged three guineas each man for every such attendance. Good night.